Good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew Fracknoy. I'm the Emeritus Professor of Astronomy here at Foothill College. And it's a great pleasure for me to welcome everyone here in the Smithwick Auditorium and everyone watching at home on YouTube to this lecture in the 18th year of the Silicon Valley Astronomy Lecture Series. Each month, we, or four, six times a year, we bring noted astronomers from around the country, from around the state, to talk to you about new developments in astronomy. This outreach series is co-sponsored by four important organizations, NASA's Ames Research Center, one of the premier NASA centers in the country, the Foothill College Astronomy Program, uh, offering both day and evening classes in astronomy, the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, which since 1889 has been presenting materials and information about astronomy to educators and the public, and the SETI, or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, which has an ongoing program looking for life in all forms in the universe. Um, tonight's speaker is Dr. Michael Bush, who works at the SETI Institute. Dr. Bush is a planetary astronomer based at the SETI Institute, as I said. His research focuses on characterizing near-Earth asteroids, asteroids that come perhaps uncomfortably close to our planet, and he characterizes their shapes, the way they spin, how they move, using both radar and radio techniques. Uh, Dr. Bush obtained his PhD in planetary science at Caltech. He worked as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California in Los Angeles and at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory before starting as a research scientist at the SETI Institute in 2013. Uh, asteroids are his specialty, and we wanted, you to, we wanted him to tell you all about the science, the exploration, and the danger that asteroids represent. He calls his talk, Rubble Piles in the Sky. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Michael Bush. All right, thank you everyone for coming out tonight, and thank you to everybody who's watching this on YouTube several months from now. So, again, I'll be talking about near-Earth objects, and specifically near-Earth asteroids. But I want to give a bit of context, what they are, where they are in the solar system. So we're going to start on a somewhat larger scale. This is a plot of the solar system out to the orbit of Jupiter, as of last week when I put these slides together. You can get the most current version of this from the International Astronomical Union's Minor Planets Center. They make a new version every day. So we are here on Earth, which is just off to the left of the sun. I realize people watching this online will not see the laser pointer, so I'm going to try to describe what I'm pointing at. We have the orbits of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. So we go out. Out here is Jupiter. Jupiter itself is down in the lower left right now. And then everything else is a different small body orbiting the sun. There's a lot of stuff out there. We have the main asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, which is the green dots. We have the Trojan asteroids that share Jupiter's orbit 60 degrees in front of the planet and 60 degrees behind. And then we've got comets passing through. But what I'm talking about tonight are all the red dots in the figure. Those are the near-Earth asteroids. Now, near-Earth is only near on the scale of the solar system. 
When we say near Earth, we're talking about objects that are on orbits around the sun that come within 50 million kilometers of the Earth's orbit, about 30 million miles. At some point in their, that orbit of theirs around the sun. So that's a long distance by the standards of the size of the Earth. It's nearby on the scale of the solar system, where it's 150 million kilometers from the Earth to the sun, 93 million miles, give or take, depending on the time of year. And Jupiter's orbit is about 1 billion miles from one side to the other side. So that's how much space we're dealing with here. There's a million asteroids roughly in this figure, many hundreds of thousands. There's even more empty space. They were playing the Star Wars music earlier the, before the talk. This is not like Star Wars. The asteroids are not all piled on top of each other. You don't have to dodge your spacecraft around them. This makes sense intuitively. You go out at night, area with a dark sky, you look up, you see stars. You don't see asteroids blocking your view every which way. The asteroids are as thinly spread as a grain of dust on one side of the room from a grain of dust on the other side of the room. That's how much empty space we're talking about here. Now, the near-Earth objects that we currently have that are able to pass near the Earth right now are not four and a half billion years old on those orbits. Those orbits are not stable. Over millions of years, they can fly by the planets, they can fall into the sun, which is kind of dramatic when it happens. They can get thrown out of the solar system completely. They can get broken apart by a couple of different ways. These asteroids have all only been on their current orbits for perhaps a few million years. They're constantly getting removed and replaced. The near-Earth population is coming from the main asteroid belt. Objects in the main asteroid belt get scattered inwards, typically by gravitational interactions with Jupiter, Mars, to some extent Saturn. And this constantly replaces near-Earth asteroids as they're destroyed. So the near-Earth objects that we're seeing are remnants of escapees from the asteroid belt. The asteroid belt, in turn, represents remnants of planet formation. The reason there is no large planet between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter is that Jupiter happened first. And it became so massive so quickly that it started scattering the orbits of everything in the asteroid belt around. Collisions between the asteroids were very, very fast. They erode rather than accumulating to a single large object. So the largest few asteroids, Ceres, Vesta, others of that size, hundreds of kilometers wide, are four and a half billion years old, the age of the solar system. Everything else is remnants of asteroid-asteroid collisions over the last four billion years. So we call this the collisional cascade. So we're trying to understand, in some sense, the origin of the solar system, history four billion years old, but we have to account for this last four billion years worth of somewhat energetic history. If we were to zoom in on all the dots, we see that history in the Horn Impact Craters on a lot of the larger objects. So this is a collage of various asteroids that have been visited by spacecraft. There's also some comets down here, but I don't have time to talk about them tonight. Emily Lakdawalla at the Planetary Society put this collage together. She has written extensively about all the different planetary space missions. So the asteroid Letitia here, the single largest one on this picture, is 132 kilometers, a bit over 80 miles wide. It's probably 4 billion years old. But you can see it's lost large sections of its volume to collisions. Things just a little bit smaller than Letitia got broken up completely. And all the other asteroids that we see over here are reaccumulated debris from previous asteroid-asteroid collisions. 
They're piles of rubble, hence rubble pile, in the title of the talk. You'll also notice a wide range of colors here. There is, in fact, an asteroid over here on the right. It may seem almost invisible because it is incredibly dark colored. There's a large section of asteroids called C-class objects, carbonaceous objects, that are very rich in carbon compounds, black, tarry gunk, basically. And four billion years ago, when the solar system formed, they never heated up very much. So they never lost these carbon compounds, which some larger objects did. When gravitational heating, as they accumulated radioactive isotopes, heating them up, they melted, boiled off the carbon compounds in the water. The C-class objects didn't do that, and so they preserve, one, this very dark color, and two, a fair amount of water. So if some of these objects are a few percent water by mass, and there's arguments, actually, as to exactly where the Earth's water came from. A lot of it may have been boiled off when the Earth formed and then delivered later by objects from the outer solar system, where there are more of these carbonaceous ones getting thrown in and then hitting the Earth. All right, so most of these objects are in the main asteroid belt. Spacecraft flying through the asteroid belt on their way to somewhere else, you can arrange to fly by an asteroid if you want to. You don't have to do that. You actually have to deliberately steer yourself to pass nearby. But we have also visited a few near-Earth asteroids with spacecraft. And those are the highlighted ones there. Now, there's widely varying size here. I mentioned Lutetia is 132 kilometers wide. There's lots of mainville asteroids that big. No near-Earth asteroid is that large. Eros, which you see down here, is the second largest one. And it's a bit over 30 kilometers from end to end. The largest near-Earth asteroid, Ganymede, is just a little bit bigger than that. But we have this whole distribution of sizes, and there are more small ones than large ones. So I'm going to zoom in now on that dot, which is the near-Earth asteroid Itokawa because it's typical for a lot of the other objects that I'll be talking about. It's only a few hundred meters across. There's about 1,000 near-Earth asteroids larger than one kilometer wide, and there's many more of these smaller things. This is what a rubble pile looks like when you zoom way in on it. As advertised, it's a pile of rocks. But it's a very interesting pile of rocks because of the environment we're in here. So Itokawa is 540 meters, call it a third of a mile from one end to the other. For comparison, the International Space Station is 100 meters wide. So that's the scale we're talking about. That's how small this thing is. Although it's still fairly big as compared to, say, the International Space Station. It's just very small as compared to planets. It's 100 meters across that single largest block that we see on Itokawa. And then there's a whole distribution of particles down to very, very fine-grained dust. This is what happens when you have repeated collisions. You just fracture the entire body and repeatedly break it apart and pieces reaccumulate. Because the gravity on something 500 meters across is so low, physics gets very weird. You could not stand on Itokawa if you were to go to Itokawa. Any slight twitch of your muscles, you would fling yourself in your spacesuit off the asteroid and out into space. And you might not come back down again because that's how low the escape velocity is. And it's like all the other asteroids I've shown you, and all but the couple largest ones, it's very obviously not round. So we've got what look like roughly two ellipsoidal pieces sitting on each other, but they don't slump down, even though they are unconsolidated gravel and other sizes of rubble, 
because there is less pressure in the middle there than there is if you stick your hand and put it on the table underneath your hand. That is how little pressure is on the inside of the, these objects. So it doesn't take much strength for them to hold themselves in quite varied shapes against gravity. And we also get other weird effects that we don't normally think about for geology, stuff like electrostatic charge. So Christine Hartzell at the University of Maryland, many others have worked on this. Gravity here is so low, you have solar wind coming in, depositing protons, electrons. You can charge up actually fairly sizable grains of material and levitate them. And they might, can migrate around the surface and resettle elsewhere. We also, particularly importantly for the near-Earth objects, have to worry about effects of radiation pressure. So sunlight has, like all light, has energy and momentum. It doesn't have any mass, but it has energy and momentum. So if you shine sunlight on the surface, there's a very weak pressure being exerted. Again, not something we normally worry about for geology, but when the gravity is tens of thousands of times less than we have on Earth, it becomes significant. This has been studied by astronomers actually for quite a long while now. About a century ago, Ivan Ostrovich Yarkovsky first figured this out on a theoretical basis. It wasn't observed, it actually happened for decades afterwards. But it's called the Yarkovsky effect. So you have an asteroid out in space, we have the sun, it's spinning. Everything is spinning to some degree. Some asteroids spin more than others. You have the afternoon side of the asteroid. That is the spot where it's the hottest. So there's the most infrared light coming off the asteroid, that part. On the night side over here, it's relatively cold. Less infrared coming off the surface. Infrared is heat is also, photons are also light. They carry momentum. It's not balanced, so there's more pressure getting exerted this way due to there being more photons going off in the opposite direction. Newton's third law, there's an equal and opposite reaction. More photons go out, the asteroid gets pushed the other way. The key point about the Yarkovsky effect is that it depends on the direction the asteroid is spinning. So we have the asteroid spinning. If it's spinning one way, it gets pushed forward in its orbit and its orbit eventually expands. If it's spinning the other way, retrograde rotation, it gets pushed backwards along its orbit and the orbit eventually shrinks. So there's this complicated interaction between the asteroid's size, shape, and density, which determine how much the Yarkovsky acceleration is, and the direction that it's spinning, which determines the direction of that push. This was first detected in terms of actual application, early satellite work. There was a project called ECHO. They launched a large balloon that was aluminized on the outside, inflated in orbit, and you could bounce radio signals off of the balloon. Except the balloon kept moving in ways that they had not expected because radiation pressure was pushing it around. And thus the Yarkowski effect has been observed. Now, the balloon has very light weight. It's very thinly spread gas inside. Rubble pile asteroid density is typically at least out of water, although some are just a little bit less because they're fairly porous. Very heavy. And yet, with very careful observations, particularly the radar astrometry we can get, we can measure even one kilometer wide asteroids getting pushed around a few kilometers over a decade or so of observations. So we're seeing rubble piles, 
the size of mountains getting shoved around just by sunlight shining on them in different ways. So that was kind of impressive. The last maybe 15 years, we realized something else, which had been suggested theoretically, again, long before. And this is the yarkovsky okeefe radzvetsky paddock effect. <laughs> we will call this Yorp. So if we have an asteroid, if it's a perfect sphere, then this is Yarkovsky's model. But asteroids aren't spheres. You saw just how irregular they can be. Even if something's overall shape is spheroidal, it's going to have piles of blocks all over the surface, probably. So these irregularities mean that the net effect of this extra heat coming off can be offset from the <coughs> asteroid's center of mass. So it can get a torque. So not only is it getting pushed, it's getting spun up or spun down. So how does this work? This is a binary asteroid called 1999 KW4. I apologize for the telephone numbers. With so many asteroids, it would be a pain to think of hundreds of thousands of names. But Steve Ostro, who is my thesis advisor at, one of my thesis advisors at Caltech, observed this system quite some time ago now and realized that KW4 has a couple of interesting properties. One, it has a satellite orbiting around it. So we have a large asteroid and we have a small asteroid around it. And two, it has this big bulge around the equator. Where did that come from? Well, consider the Yorp effect. We have a pile of rubble sitting in space. We keep spinning it up and up and up and up. Eventually, it's going to bulge out around the equator. The Earth bulges out by about one part in 300 because the Earth's gravity is quite large and the Earth isn't spinning that fast. If we take a very small asteroid, we spin it every couple of hours, it's going to bulge out quite dramatically around the middle. Now, if it's a sphere, roughly speaking, to begin with, if it was a pure fluid, it would act like the Earth. It would become an ellipsoid. But these are piles of rubble. The fact that they have compressive strength and internal friction starts to matter. And you end up just bulging out material around the equator and getting an actual ridge as opposed to a smooth ellipsoidal shape. You also can get various irregularities. KW4 is pretty much round around the middle, but there are other asteroids where we see large dents in those equatorial ridges. It's not clear if those are impact craters or if it's just we spun up this asteroid and bulged it out and the arrangement of blocks on the inside happened to give it that shape. As it spins up and up and up and reconfigures itself, we have another complication. I talked about how Yorp depends on the asteroid's shape. The shape just changed. Oops. Now all the Yorp torques are different. And so there's this complicated sort of random process where asteroids spin up over hundreds, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, reconfigure themselves, and then may either spin, keep spinning up or spin down again. If they keep spinning up, eventually material at the equator goes into orbit. So the asteroid literally flies apart. This was the original suggestion for Yorp. It was the rotational bursting. The idea was that asteroids would spin up so fast that they would actually explode. That relied on the object having enough tensile strength that you could spin it up so quickly that when it broke, the pieces were traveling so quickly that gravity couldn't hold them together. If it's a rubble pile, very loosely consolidated, you can sort of shed off material and form a moon, and it will stay in orbit. And maybe 15% or so of asteroids a few hundred meters wide, near-Earth objects anyway, have satellites like this. So 
That's pretty cool, I thought. So this is all very interesting and unusual physics, but what does this have to do with the Earth? This is where the danger part of the title comes in. It may seem a little bit overblown, but it could have been worse. Louis and Walter Alvarez, who used to be over at Berkeley many years ago, had a book they entitled T-Rex and the Crater of Doom. You can find it, copies around. And they were referring to this. So this is the Yucatan Peninsula in southern Mexico. 65, 66 million years ago, an asteroid five to 10 kilometers wide hit the Earth. Right there. It made a very large hole. That hole is now actually not that obvious on the surface. It's covered up by the last several tens of millions of years of sediment. But if you do very detailed geologic mapping, it shows up. There's lots of fractures in the limestone rock. So if you are on the part that's currently on land, you find a huge number of sinkholes in the rock, tracing along the crater rim. If you look at the bedrock underneath all the sediment, you see this nice double ring pattern. So this is a very large crater, 66 million years old. Geologists back in the 1980s were, even before that, were going around the world trying to understand a pattern. You find rocks that are 66 million years old. There are many different sorts of dinosaur bones in them. Then there's a very narrow layer. And then above that, there are very few dinosaur bones, no dinosaurs other than birds. And a lot of other species disappear too. There was a mass extinction event. What triggered this? Well, that layer that I mentioned, the KT boundary, the Alvarez's, again, over at Berkeley back in the 80s, did some very careful geochemistry. And they realized that layer globally is loaded with iridium. Iridium is an interesting element. If you take the mixture of stuff that we make planets out of, you tend to get metal, nickel and iron mostly, rocks, silicate oxides, and then water and carbon compounds. The Earth is relatively low on the water and carbon and very high on the silicate rocks and the metal. The metal all sinks to the middle of the Earth. So there's a very large ball of nickel iron several thousand kilometers below our feet right now. That ball is, happens to contain almost all the iridium in the Earth. It mixes in with the nickel and iron very well. and doesn't mix in with rock well at all. So all this iridium that you're finding in the KT boundary layer had to come from somewhere. It probably didn't come from the core of the Earth. One place it can come from is an asteroid, because you have a differentiated asteroid. You break it apart. You, now you can have pieces that have a significant quantity of iridium in them. Or you have a non-differentiated asteroid and it has a certain amount just to begin with. So they predicted that there should be a large impact crater somewhere in the world that caused a mass extinction 66 million years ago. Here it is. So this is the dinosaur killer. Now, impacts like this happen on the Earth very rarely, perhaps once per 100 million years. They don't necessarily cause a mass extinction. There have been a half a dozen different mass extinction events in the last few hundred million years. Only the one 66 million years ago is convincingly linked to an asteroid impact. And the geologists and paleontologists can discuss that with much more expertise than I can. But large impact events like this do happen, just very infrequently. Now, there are more small asteroids than large ones. Smaller impacts happen more often. How many people here in the audience have been to Meteor Crater in Arizona? OK, quite a few of you. You all recognize this picture. So Meteor Crater is several hundred meters wide and pretty deep. 
This was made by an asteroid about 50 meters wide, so much, much, much smaller. It is quite well preserved because it landed in the middle of the desert in Arizona. And this whole area around it is the ejecta blanket. So this object came down pretty much straight vertically. It happens to have been made of nickel iron, which a couple percent of asteroids are. Busted up cores of larger objects from the main asteroid belt. Hits the ground. And you can go around now with a metal detector if the owners of the site will let you do that. And you can pick up bits of that meteor. So something like this happens on the Earth every few thousand years. This one is about 50,000 years old. I forget the exact age. But it's quite well preserved. Most of the time, they happen in the ocean. And then even if they actually reach the bottom of the water, they get covered over by sediment fairly quickly. There's a bunch of other impact events of craters of different sizes scattered around the Earth. Many of you may have seen this still from a, vid from a video. If not, you can go onto YouTube. Those of you who are already watching on YouTube or can look things up while you're watching me, you will see all sorts of videos of a place called Chelyabinsk in Russia. It's a city of a million people, roughly. Just over five years ago, this happened, just around local sunrise. So the asteroid in this case was about 15 to 20 meters across, much smaller than the, even the meteor crater in Arizona, impactor. This one came at a very shallow angle. And so rather than actually coming to the ground intact, it was stopped pretty high up in the sky. Now the asteroid has fallen through the Earth's gravitational field at this point. So it's picked up quite a lot of velocity in addition to the many kilometers per second it already had relative to the Earth's orbit around the sun. All that kinetic energy has to go somewhere. It gets converted, in this case, to heat and light and sound. The fireball very briefly outshone the sun. There were a couple of cases of meteor sunburn, which is not UV burns. It's just the sunlight not something like the meteor fireball light getting focused a little bit. People were standing in awkward locations and actually get significant skin damage from that. More common problem. What do you all do when you see a bright flash of light in the sky? I'm hearing various responses here, and people in Chelyabinsk had many different reactions. A lot of people ducked. Other people went to the window. The shockwave travels at the speed of sound. 30 seconds to a couple of minutes later, depending on where in the town they were, shockwave hits the window. There were a lot of injuries from broken glass. There are also a lot of injuries afterwards, people stepping on the broken glass. About $30 million US in damage, 1,600 people were injured. Nobody died, but it was a pretty near thing. Something like the Chelyabinsk impactor happens somewhere in the world about once every 30 years. Most of the time over the middle of the ocean. Less of a problem. But we'd like to know about the next one that happens over a city before it happens. So how do we deal with this? There's a large number of survey programs that have been funded by particularly NASA for the last more than 20 years now, and also significant funding from other countries. You see here the three most prolific at the moment, the Catalina Sky Survey in Arizona, the PanStars Project in Hawaii, the Wide Field Infrared Space Explorer was initially an astrophysics satellite 
It's been repurposed for its extended mission solely to find and track near-Earth asteroids and characterize them. The goal here is find every possible near-Earth asteroid before it comes anywhere near the Earth, if we can. There's also a project called ATLAS, which aims to find things, most things like the Chelyabinsk impactor with a few days to a couple of weeks of notice. They still have a blind spot because we can't really observe directly near the sun. There's a proposal out of the Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, led by Amy Mainzer, that would call NeoCam, that would use technology derived from WISE to look right near the sun in the infrared from space, which you can't do from the ground. And that way you can find asteroids that are coming straight towards us from that direction. But the general goal here is find as many near-Earth asteroids as possible, predict their orbits out as far as we can. And currently we're discovering about 2,000 near-Earth asteroids a year. I say we, I'm not involved in these survey programs myself. There are many dozens of people involved in all of them. And I don't want to take credit for the work of other people. I do mostly characterization of asteroids that have already been discovered. So this project has gotten called Space Guard after an old Arthur C. Clarke novel. But it has done its job. Initially, the goal was to find all near-Earth asteroids larger than one kilometer in diameter. Because something like that, no matter where it hits in the world, we're going to have a very serious problem. Fortunately, we are now tracking all of those objects. We know that we're finding almost all of them because the rate at which we discovered them went up very steeply in the 1990s as CCD cameras got better and telescope surveys started operations, and it's now dropped away steeply down almost to nothing. So we're finding and tracking almost everything that's more than one kilometer across in the near-Earth population. Above a few kilometers in diameter, we're tracking everything because spacecraft that are orbiting the sun can see large asteroids even on the direct opposite side of the sun from the Earth. They can't see the sort of one kilometer size ones. So there may be a couple that are just on the far side of the sun most of the time. We'll wait for them to move around. But we can say, there won't be any impacts by anything bigger than one kilometer across onto the Earth in the next few hundred years. There is one object that ha called 1950DA that has a slight chance of hitting the Earth in the year 2880. I cannot yet rule it out. It's been annoying me for the past 10 years. <laughs> Fortunately, we've got plenty of time to figure that one out. We are now extending the survey program down to find and track stuff down to uh, everything down to about 140 meters. Maybe we can push it down to 100 meters. For stuff like Chelyabinsk size, you don't get decades worth of advance notice. You may get a few days or a week, which is enough to tell everybody in the affected zone to stay away from the window. When we find the asteroids, we want to characterize them as best we can and track them as precisely as we can. This is stuff that I am working on particularly with groups of people at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. You see it in the upper right. And then the Goldstone site in Southern California, which is part of NASA's Deep Space Network and run by a group at JPL for the radar program. In this case, we send out a radar signal. We code it in time so we can image the asteroid we're bouncing the radar beam off of. And this gives us pictures like you see here. They're not as detailed as the spacecraft images, but we can study a lot more objects. And you see here just a wide range of shapes. Some are lumpy spheroids. They're not entirely round, but then you've got rocks scattered everywhere. You've got things like Itokawa, two pieces sitting on each other. This one here, 1994CC, is kind of fun. It may not be entirely obvious. There's a bright dot there and there, above and below the asteroid itself. 
That's two small satellites. This is a triple asteroid system. It has two moons orbiting it, not just one. So we're doing cool science here in addition to making sure they aren't going to hit the Earth. We do tend to get a fair number of false alarms because initially we can't predict the asteroid's orbit all that well. We measure its position on the sky. We try to measure how fast it's going. There's inherent uncertainty in that measurement. We run the orbit out in time. The uncertainty region where the asteroid could be in the future keeps growing. It may not necessarily grow linearly, but generally speaking, further in the future, the harder it is to predict where it's going to be. So in 2011, we had this particular case, asteroid 2011 AG5. It was discovered early in January of 2011, hence the telephone number. Initially, our predictions of the orbit are pretty uncertain. It was a long region where it could be. We didn't know its orbital period perfectly, effectively. So it spreads out along a line. That line happens to intersect where the Earth will be in 2040. So the Earth is there, and there's this long streak, hundreds of thousands of kilometers long. We say at this point that there's one chance in 500 of it hitting the Earth. But this is just a way of quantifying our ignorance of where exactly it's going to be. The first thing we want to do is go get more data and refine our knowledge of where the object is. So a year later, 2012, got observed again. We now know that in 2040, 2011 AG5 will be over here. The Earth is here, so it'll be a couple times further away than the Moon is from Earth. No risk to anyone. And if we're still doing radar astronomy in 2040, we go plan some cool pictures. Okay. What do we do if we find an impactor? The really small ones, much smaller than Chelyabinsk, we go meteor hunting. In this case, we is Peter Yaniskins at the SETI Institute. Peter is a professional meteor hunter. So he gets to go to the most unusual places in the world if he thinks he can find meteors there. He found some stuff up in Sutter's Mill a few years ago. You may have heard about that one. It was some of the old gold rush areas that had meteors dropping upon them. He also got to go to northern Sudan. In 2008, asteroid 2008 TC3 was discovered. 30 hours later, it flashed in the sky above the Sahara Desert. This caused a certain amount of anxiety for a little while because a bright flash in explosion in the sky above Sudan is a little bit anxiety-provoking for many people. But all it did was drop a bunch of meteorites across this section of the desert. So Peter Yaniskins flew over to Khartoum Moe Shaddad is a professor at the University of Khartoum, and many of his students organized, and they and Peter hiked back and forth across the desert and picked up a bunch of meteorites. So if any of you ever visit the SETI Institute offices, you can see pieces of this meteorite. Those are the very small objects. Something like Chelyabinsk impactor, maybe Peter would run towards the explosion because he likes to run towards meteors. I make fun of him about this. Most people would want to stay a significant distance away. Larger impactors, you talk about moving people out of a city if you have a few days to a few weeks of notice. There is a group at FEMA, Leviticus Lewis, been working with actually integrating what happens if we have to evacuate a city due to impending asteroid impact into disaster planning. Hey, it happened once. Think about this. If we have something like the larger objects, though, a few hundred meters wide, 
Then we talk about asteroid deflection. So again, nothing one kilometer across or larger will hit the Earth the next few hundred years. There is a possibility of something a few hundred meters wide. We haven't ruled out all of those potential impacts yet. We haven't found all the objects. And we, orbits are still uncertain for a large number of them. So how do we move an asteroid if we have to? There are several different ways people have talked about for doing this. Two of them have gotten the most attention. These are kinetic impact deflection and gravity tractor deflection. Kinetic impact deflection is, in concept, fairly simple. You shove the asteroid out of the way. But how do you move a, shove a bubble pile the size of a small mountain? You take a spacecraft that has to be fairly heavy, and you run it into the asteroid as fast as you possibly can. So if you have a spacecraft that is 100 million times less massive than the asteroid, and you are traveling at 10 kilometers per second, you will shove the asteroid out of the way by a tenth of a millimeter per second. That may not seem like much, but if you add it up over tens of years, decades out, you can deflect an asteroid by thousands of kilometers, especially if you can time it such that you do it before, say, a close, a close Earth flyby before it can hit the Earth, because then its orbit gets changed more dramatically. This has, however, one disadvantage, which is that it depends entirely on the target that you hit. You don't know exactly how a rubble pile is going to react to getting hit with a hammer, let alone a large impactor like this. So there's an inherent uncertainty. How do rubble pile asteroids react to getting hit at 10 kilometers per second? We have done impactor experiments before. The deep impact spacecraft flew into a comet to study the mechanical properties of comets. It didn't change the comet's orbit perceptibly. But comets and asteroids are two different classes of objects. So we would like to test that, potentially, on an object that can't hit the Earth, move it onto an orbit where it also can't hit the Earth, to have some confidence that we could do this in real time if we had to. There's a strict rule here. We're not going to create an impact hazard when we are trying to address the impact hazard. There's also the gravity tractor deflection approach, which I'll talk about for a couple of minutes. This one sounds more like something out of Star Trek, but it does actually work in concept. We talk about how the asteroid has very weak gravity. It's very weak, but it's there. So if I have a spacecraft, you see in the artist's depiction here on the right-hand side, next to an asteroid, there is a very weak gravitational pull from the asteroid on the spacecraft, pulling it downwards. At the same time, again, Newton's third law, equal and opposite reaction. The asteroid is getting pulled towards the spacecraft. Again, this is very, very weak. We don't normally think of mountains getting pulled towards us just because we're standing next to them. But if you're in free fall, microgravity around the sun, this can accumulate with time if you can find some way of adding momentum to the system. You can do this by taking your rocket exhaust and angling it so that it misses the asteroid. Now, rocket exhaust is going that way. And if you balance everything correctly, the distance between the spacecraft and the asteroid remains constant, but the asteroid is getting very slowly pulled in this direction. This has a couple of advantages. One is that it's very, very well controlled. You can apply the deflection gradually, and you can see how much you've done, and you can apply more and more and more. Whereas with the kinetic impact deflection, you only get one impact per spacecraft, because they're destroyed on impact. The gravity tractor deflection also is independent of the internal structure of the asteroid. You pull on the whole thing nearly uniformly, very slowly pull it off course. The downside is that it's very slow. 
So you might need 50 years to move an asteroid by 10,000 kilometers and change an Earth impact to a non-impacting one. But in principle, this can work. You do, however, have a formation flying problem. You have to very precisely control where your spacecraft is. And you have to have rockets that can run continuously at a low level of thrust for a very long time. There are rocket engines, solar electric propulsion designs of various concepts that have run for several years at a time, not for quite so long, and not for deflecting asteroids around. So there have been proposals by NASA and other space agencies to test both of these asteroid deflection techniques. So far, only the kinetic impactor deflection project has actually been approved. The asteroid redirect mission was the NASA concept for gravity tractor deflection demonstration. That was canceled a bit over a year ago. But the DART mission is going ahead. NASA missions have a tendency to have contrived acronyms. DART is Double Asteroid Redirection Test. This, in turn, is part of the Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment, or AIDA. Those are the mission names. But the concept here is that we'll take a spacecraft and run it into an asteroid and see what happens. Now, the DART project, which is being led by Cheryl Reed over at the Applied Physics Lab right now, the goal is to run into the satellite of a binary asteroid. Because in this case, we have a relatively small asteroid, Didymos Beta, is the official designation for the thing, that's in orbit around a larger asteroid. And if we hit the spacecraft into the asteroid, it gets destroyed on impact. And it shoves both the orbit of these two objects together around the sun, slightly. More importantly, it causes a much larger change to the orbit of the moon around the main asteroid. So we have redundancy in the design. If we can't measure the deflection directly by a monitoring spacecraft or radar ranging, we can observe just the light, what we call the light curve of the system, time when that satellite passes through the asteroid's shadow at particular times very precisely and measure even a very small deflection independently of any instrumentation that might be flown along with the spacecraft. So DART is going forward. You can get information at the web address there. And it is to do this deflection of asteroid Didymos Beta in 2022 if the mission goes ahead. We'll see what happens. I'm just going to finish up by mentioning that there's a lot of other asteroid missions that have happened. I've talked about some of them already, but I didn't realize actually just how many there are until I put this slide together. Despite actually knowing about all the missions, it just struck me as how many there are when I made the list. So there have been three asteroid missions in the past to near-Earth objects. The first one was the near Shoemaker spacecraft, which landed on the asteroid Eros after mapping the whole place back in the 1990s through to the very early 2000s. 2005, the Hayabusa spacecraft got to the asteroid Itokawa. This is the other side of Itokawa from what I showed you before. And then in 2012, the Chang'e 2 spacecraft flew by the asteroid Tutatis. Chang'e 2 is part of the Chinese space agency's lunar exploration program. It was initially orbiting the moon. They played some fun orbital mechanics tricks to fly it out of Earth-Moon space and arrange it to pass very, very close to the asteroid Tutatis, less than one kilometer from the surface, actually, which is a little bit closer than they had intended. 
So I'm glad the radar predictions of where the asteroid was and how it was arranged in space were correct. If I was giving this talk a month from now, I might be showing you pictures from Hayabusa 2, which is currently on a final approach to the asteroid Ryugu. It's closer to the asteroid than we are to the moon right now. Makoto Yoshikawa's team is doing very good work there, and ideally we'll have a lot of data soon. But right now, it's just a dot on the spacecraft's cameras. The OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is on, the way, on its way to the asteroid Bennu, which we have radar observations of, so we can make a computer rendering of it, but we don't have actual pictures yet. Those will come in August of this year. Bennu has a series of potential Earth impacts between 2175 and about 2200. The impact probability you may see assessed as 1 in 3700 or so right now. Again, that's just a way of quantifying our uncertainty and where the asteroid will be. OSIRIS-REx will provide extraordinarily accurate measurements of where Bennu is in space and how fast it's moving, better than we can get from the ground. And it will do that for several years until it leaves the asteroid to come back to the Earth, a few years. And that should help resolve the ambiguity in where Bennu will be at the end of the 2100s. And ideally, it'll rule out the impacts, or it may rule out some of them and not all of them. We'll see what happens. I talked about AIDA and DART. That will actually visit another asteroid, 2001 CB21. It just happens to be able to fly by it on its way to Didymos. And then there's another pro other projects. NEA Scout is a small satellite project by Julie Castillo-Roguez down at JPL. Destiny is another small satellite project by Tomoko Are in Japan. That's to go to the asteroid Phaethon. Phaethon is kind of fun. It gets very, very, very close to the sun, closer to the sun than Mercury. So it actually heats up to the point that not only do we have Yarkovsky effect pushing it around, the heat stress actually causes dust grains to crack and fly off the surface. So it causes a meteor shower on Earth every year. No hazard to the Earth anytime soon, but it does create a nice light show. And then there's a proposed Chinese asteroid mission that would go to a couple of other asteroids, including an asteroid called Apophis. Apophis keeps getting featured in discussions of the impact hazard because it very briefly was assessed as having a few percent chance of hitting the Earth in 2029. This was back in 2004. It very quickly became clear that it will not hit the Earth in 2029. It will, however, come extraordinarily close to the Earth. So if anybody wants to travel to Brazil, you can see it fly by with their naked eyes overhead in 2029, if you want to make travel plans. All right, so I have talked about a lot of stuff, and I think I'll finish up here, and I'll switch over to questions. Thank you again. On the Yarkovsky effect, if you had an asteroid that was uniform on you know a surface and reflection and you know perfectly spherical, wouldn't the effect of light from the sun would be to add energy to the asteroid's orbit without necessarily giving it more spin, so that it would actually get into an elliptical orbit over time? So there's a, actually a couple of effects here. There's direct radiation pressure from the sun, sunlight coming in that mm -hmm. itself has momentum. Mm -hmm. Then there's the Yarkovsky effects of thermal radiation heat going back out. Oh, yeah, I actually meant to say, also say the asteroid wasn't spinning. So if it was 
spherical and not spinning and uniform. With if it reflection. was completely, magically, completely still yeah. and not spinning, then you just have solar radiation pressure, and that does change the eccentricity of the orbit. Right. It so this is the Yarkovsky acceleration, but the main effect of Yarkovsky in the short term is to change the semi-major axis. Yeah, although even in an asteroid that's spinning, some of the light is instantly reflected. And you have to correct for both reflected yeah. sunlight and re-radiated yeah, heat. Yeah, okay. Every year we seem to go through a, a cloud of meteorites. Um, why doesn't that just suck into the gravity of the sun? Why does it sit out there? So if something's in orbit around the sun, absent some other force changing that orbit, it will stay in that, on that orbit. So if we have something like Phaethon, which is occasionally spewing out dust particles that become meteors, they stay on nearly the same orbit. They tend to spread out a little bit because of things like radiation pressure. And typically the first effect is to spread them out along the orbit. So we get a long string of dust particles sharing the orbit of Phaethon or whichever other comet or asteroid. And that forms a ring around the orbit. And then the Earth can run through that cloud. It also spreads out around the orbit so that it may be hundreds of thousands, millions of, million kilometers wide, and the Earth runs through that over the course of a day, or, of a day and we see those flashes for however many hours. So it is in orbit? Yes. Okay. And unless the eccentricity changes to the point that it falls into the sun or it gets too close that it vaporizes, it stays in orbit. Yes, yeah, so late last year there was this cigar-shaped near-Earth asteroid that got a lot of um, publicity through NASA, et cetera, on the news. And I was just curious if you could comment on that, if you knew what I was referring to, and if anybody else knows is what I'm referring Oumuamua? to. Is the object Oumuamua? If anybody. OK, yes. so Oumuamua is not actually a near-Earth asteroid. Okay. It passed near the Earth. But Oumuamua is something far stranger. It's an interstellar why is asteroid. It strange? Yeah. So this came into our solar system from the outside. We haven't actually seen that happen before. We've seen asteroids and comets get kicked out of our solar system. Their eccentricity takes them out to the orbit of Jupiter. They fly by Jupiter. They can get just enough energy. They fly out of the solar system and keep on going, like the Voyager spacecraft and New Horizons have done. And they never come back. We expected that should happen around other stars, giant planets, particularly double star systems. You can do this more efficiently, maybe. But we had never seen one before. Oumuamua was discovered, actually, after it made its closest approach to the Earth and when it was on its way back out. But it quickly became clear it's traveling very, very, very fast. So fast that it could never have been gravitationally bound to the sun in the first place. So that was very new and exciting. SETI actually has a talk about that, which is on the SETI YouTube channel. Several of the ex experts on the discovery and dynamics of those objects talked about it. Um, so I was wondering if you can talk about the practicality of um, maybe using some of the effects you were talking about uh, for either um, blocking out or perhaps um, focusing sunlight um, to deflect uh, potentially dangerous asteroids. So people have talked. The, the question is using Yarkovsky effect to move asteroids around. Yes. This has been suggested. But it's very, very, very slow. So somebody worked out, I think, if you were to take a container of powdered aluminum, which is very reflective, and you were to coat one side of 1950 DA, 
asteroid I mentioned that has the potential impact in 800 years, you could change the outcome of that impact, not impact, by 10,000 kilometers over 800 years. That's really slow. And we prefer to do the deflection faster than that, if we can. So the gravity tractor deflection and the kinetic impactor deflection much more rapid. Earlier, you mentioned what uh, might happen to, to a person uh, on the surface of an asteroid. I was wondering if you could expand on that and if there's a kind of relatable analogy or metaphor um, that, that would capture that experience, something along the lines of maybe loose snow. I'm not sure about this because, again, our normal physical intuitions tend to break down. So NASA has discussed sending humans to near-Earth asteroids or bringing pieces of asteroids in space to astronauts who are in space. One of the uncertainties was what happens when you grab the surface. I talked about how you can have electrostatic charge buildup. You might end up with some massive dust bunny-like thing where the astronaut touches the surface and now their hands are coated in electrostatically stuck dust clumps and they can't move their gloves anymore. That would be really uncomfortable for everyone. But I don't know what a good analogy to that is. Maybe a dust bunny is the best thing I can come up with. Okay, I'm worried about this asteroid may hit in 800 years. What's the exact date, and particularly, how big is it? I'm sorry? What is the exact date of that asteroid may hit in 800 years, and how big is it? I'm recalling that it's March 16th, but I'd have to look it up. <laughs> how big is it? It's about a, it's a little over one kilometer across. Ah, okay. And that would do how much damage? If you go online, you can Google 1950 DA tsunami. You can see a series of simulations of what happens if you drop it in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, I can't actually tell you where on Earth it would land. Yeah. Because we can plot the, this line where the asteroid can be. We can plot that line onto the Earth, but I don't know how the Earth will be oriented in space at that point because yeah. the length of the day is uncertain. And what's its chance of hitting us? Is it it's about 1% in the current assessment. One percent, less than one. We're not sure if it's okay. somewhere of that order. Maybe, maybe okay. we're quantifying our ignorance here. Ideally, we'll rule it out completely, and okay. this won't be a problem anymore. Right. But we need more data. I'm hoping for tax day. So, uh, even at these low densities, can you not? Why would you not just uh, land uh, a rocket object or uh, a rocket on it with a perhaps a, a disc-sized? Um, contact uh, plate, if you will, or why so would you not just push it? It's a pile, it is a pile of rubble, and you put a rocket engine, press it into the surface, it's not clear how it reacts. So I mentioned the asteroid redirect mission, which was a NASA proposal. The idea there was to pick up a block from the surface of a near-Earth asteroid, something that might fit on, that would probably fit on this stage, and bring that back to Earth. One of the big engineering challenges there was how do you design a system to grab on to a large block that's several tens of tons and move it around space in a controlled way with a rocket. Moving around the entire rubble pile as opposed to a block that has a certain degree of cohesion, that becomes much more difficult. The gravity tractor has the advantage that it, it just pulls everything uniformly. 
Was there a question here? I was wondering if you have to destroy the satellite. So like I talked about, about how we have to, this is for the kinetic impact reflection, why it has to get destroyed on impact. Yeah. So I talked about how we need as much momentum as possible. Momentum is yeah. the product of mass and velocity. Okay. So if I want to move a asteroid that is 10 million, 100 million times more massive than my spacecraft by a certain amount, I need my spacecraft to be traveling 10 million times, 100 million times faster. So if I want to move the asteroid by a millimeter a second, I need the spacecraft to hit the asteroid at 10 kilometers per second, six miles per second. It is very, very hard to make a spacecraft that can survive running into a mountain at 10 kilometers per second. Yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> anyway, oh. so no, it's not possible. People have talked about designs for impactors that actually survive the experience, but it's a very hard problem. Okay. This is maybe going a little afield. Um, as you are mapping all of the paths of these asteroids, um, has anyone thought about using them as shielding for missions to, manned missions to the outer solar system? Because if you could park your spacecraft in the shadow, of one of these close approach asteroids for the portion of the mission when you're close to the sun, close, you know, or close to Earth, you could ride that shadow out to where your shielding issues are less and you don't have to launch as much mass off Earth to so use as a shield for the manned mission. There is a whole separate talk about space resources and near-Earth asteroids, which I didn't have time for tonight. Okay. There are several different companies and space agencies working on this, and I talked about how asteroids contain lots of water and carbon compounds. People talk about using those for life support and fuel. But one of the other primary products is just pure mass. You take all the rubble pile that you don't have any other use for, you pile it into sandbags, and you put that on the outside of your spacecraft for radiation shielding for humans and sensitive electronics. So it's been talked about, and there are companies working on it. I just didn't have time to talk about it tonight. What is the current estimate as to when it is thought that humans could go to Mars? I am not that sort of engineer. <laughs> and I won't attempt to predict what investments people will make in, space, in, in that particular set of space travel. Uh, hello. What's the, last two questions, please. What's the possibility of uh, mining an asteroid? So that's the space resources stuff that I talked about. People talk sometimes about mining asteroids for platinum because I mentioned iridium, which is a platinum group metal, it mixes in with the iron. And you have also platinum and palladium and so on. That is actually not valuable enough to be worth mining in space and bringing back to the ground. Instead, the products are stuff to be used in space. So you pull water out of asteroid material, you can use that for fuel, for life support for humans. You can pull carbon compounds out, make plastic, make composite material, potentially life support. You can talk about using nickel iron asteroid material for making structural elements. If you want to get really fancy, you can, suppose you can make solar cells out of the silicon, but that's a separate talk. Thank you. All right. Michael, thanks for the talk. Um, 
And I'm glad you touched upon the space resources side. So we didn't only explore the dark side, if you will, of, of uh, NEOs. And uh, yeah, we should talk to Andy about organizing another talk on the other side of the coin, the, uh, the space resources side. But a question, um, you know, when we did the, the FDL workshop and we talked about these mitigation strategies and we had the, the gravity tug and the kinetic impact, there was a third one which you didn't touch upon tonight and I wonder if that is now for some reason off the table or just didn't want to talk about it, it's too controversial, but that's the nuclear so, nudge, if you will. Can you comment on that? The project here that Bill was describing was the idea originally developed in the 1990s that you would deflect an asteroid by setting off a nuclear bomb. This is overkill for these smaller asteroids. So you don't actually blow the asteroid to pieces. You don't want to do that because then you have rubble pile bits going every which way. Instead, you set off the nuclear device a few hundred meters above the surface and the flash of X-rays and gamma rays vaporizes that whole side of the asteroid and that gives you a, sh a shove on the rest of the mass. Megan Brooksile over at Livermore, among many other people, can tell you in detail how that would work. For the smaller asteroids, if we've got lots of warning time, it's not necessary. The kinetic impactor and the gravity tractor can do the job without the complexities of such explosives. And also, we're not going to test that ever because there's international treaties that say we're not going to put nuclear bombs in space. I want to make one final comment, if I may, because I forgot to highlight it during my talk. I want to emphasize just how international and collaborative all of this asteroid stuff is. So you see here all the different space agencies that have been involved in asteroid missions. We have NASA, we have JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, we've got the European Space Agency, we have the Canadian Space Agency, the Chinese Space Agency, and that's not including the many other countries where people who contribute to asteroid survey and characterization are based. Australia, Chile, do lots of stuff in the Southern Hemisphere, South Africa, and many other places because we want to cover as much of the sky as possible and find asteroids in all directions. And then also keep tracking them no matter where they go on the sky. So this is an international and global project by necessity. All right, thank you all again. <laughs>